G'day mate, welcome to episode 31 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this episode, we take a look at a little bit of the science behind endurance and jump into the physiological adaptations that occur to different training. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Matty Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. G'day mate, welcome to episode 31 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. It is so good to have you here listening Welcome. I hope you've had a good week or wherever you are in your week, your training is going well and you are making those gains. I have got an exciting, well at least I think it's exciting, episode planned for you today talking about something that is near and dear to my heart and something I could talk on all day and that's the science behind endurance training. But before we crack into that, I just want to mention a couple of things. Now, I talked about it last week, and I know a lot of you were sniffing around the link, uh, and that's about paying it forward. This year, for the Christmas period, I want to collectively make a donation from the Exponential Podcast community to a charity, and the charity I've chosen is World Vision. So if you have found this episode or any of the Exponential Performance podcast episodes helpful useful informative for your training you've taken something away from them it would be greatly appreciated if you could make a small donation i literally make no money from doing this podcast and it's something that i want to share with you to help you and your performance so if you would like to give something back i would really appreciate it if you could pay it forward in the form of a donation Each of these episodes gets upwards of 500 listens. So if everyone that listens to this podcast could donate a dollar, then we would have $500 to donate to people who are less fortunate in this world that we live in. I've already kicked things off by making a $100 donation. So please, I would love for you to join me and making a small donation to help those in need and paying forward the love of the Exponential Performance Podcast. If you want to know what those links are, check them out over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash 31 for this episode. All of the links will be over there. The Give a Little page is automatically linked in with World Vision, so I never, ever touch the money, never see the money. It just goes directly to them. Now, I had uh, someone interested in what's the best way to listen to the podcast. Well, I'm not too sure how you listen to the podcast. Please leave a comment below letting me know how you listen to the podcast and what's the best way for you. But personally, I listen to podcasts on Stitcher Radio, which is an app that you can have on your phone, and I find it really good. You can scroll through the podcasts, and you can add podcasts to your listen later list. And what that allows you to do is it downloads the podcast episodes onto your device for you to listen offline later. 
So I download them when I'm at home, when I've got Wi-Fi connection. They're downloaded. Then when you head out and you don't have connection, you're still able to listen to them without using your data to stream the podcasts. You can start them. You can stop them. Then you can restart them. Uh, and it'll pick up from where you left off last time. So it's a really convenient way of listening to podcasts in my experience. So that's what I use, Stitcher Radio. Check it out in your app store. But please, if you're using something different or something better to listen to your podcasts on, please post the link in the comment section below, and I will share it with everybody else. So that's enough about that. Let's crack into the information for this week about the science of endurance. I vividly remember sitting in the lecture theatre at university listening to my exercise physiology lecturer just absolutely spew information out of their mouth clicking through slide after slide after slide of stuff about how the human body responds to exercise and for me this was some of the most amazing things I'd ever heard I could directly understand how it related to training how it you can improve your performance with it I just took pages and pages of notes and then when I went home uh, at the end of the day I would go out and ride my bike or run or kayak and I would be studying while I ran. I would be thinking about what my body was doing at the time, how the changes were happening, the adaptations to the different types of training that I was doing. For me it was one of the most uh, pivotal moments I guess and it formed my love of, of physiology. And I know other people sat through the same classes and absolutely hated it. They found it very confusing. They didn't understand it. Um, they didn't make those links that I did to how it could possibly be beneficial. And I guess for them it just didn't click. But what I want to do today is just go through some of the science underpinning endurance performance because I believe that by knowing physiology and physiology is simply the why or the how the body works anatomy which a lot more people have heard of I guess anatomy is the physical structure of the body the bits and pieces the bones the muscles the organs Whereas physiology is, is how those things work. Once you know the why and the how these things work, then you can start doing a little bit of tinkering. And it helps you inform your training. It's a bit like a mechanic, I guess. Most of you listening to this podcast will drive a car or even ride a bike. And... The day-to-day -day running of that bike or that car is relatively easy. You put fuel in it. If you get a flat tire, you can probably deal with that, hopefully. And for me, the extent of my mechanical knowledge when it comes to car is putting fuel in it, fixing the tires, and changing the wiper fluid once that gets low. Other than that, I don't 
understand the engine and how that works. I don't understand the I understand the concept, but I don't know as much. I don't know enough detail. If it was to break down, I wouldn't be able to open up the bonnet and get in there and fix the engine. I wouldn't be able to tinker around with the different bits and pieces, the carburetor, the bloody whatever else there is under the hood of a car. And it's kind of like that with the body. If you know the bits and pieces under the bonnet, so to speak, and how they work, then if it breaks down, or if you wanted to tune it up to make it go faster, then you know how it works and you are able to do that. So what I want to do is just start digging into a little bit of physiology behind endurance performance. So when it comes to endurance, there are two key areas in terms of physiology that I want to look at today. And these are the two primary areas where adaptations occur, uh, at least the bulk of the adaptations that occur. And these two adaptations are cardiovascular and metabolic. So cardiovascular is all about the heart and the lungs and the plumbing of the body in terms of the blood vessels. And it's all about transporting oxygen to your working muscles. On the other hand, uh, the metabolic adaptations are all about producing energy from this oxygen that has been moved to the muscles. So we've got cardiovascular, which is the heart and lungs and the blood vessels, and then we've got the metabolic processes, which are uh, a little smaller, and a little potentially harder to understand because you can't really see them. I mean, everyone can feel their heart beating. They can see their blood when it, you know, when they cut themselves. But for the metabolic processes, they are a little more chemical in nature, and you can't really see them with the naked eye. So all of these adaptations that occur to endurance training can also be split into two different categories of central factors. And these central factors are things that happen on a systemic level. These are whole body. Uh, and I'll talk about what they specifically are very soon. And the other category is peripheral, which is happening uh, in the periphery, out in the in the specific areas. So if there are central systemic adaptations, it means that there's a general improvement in general fitness. And this is why cross-training works. Because by improving these things, improves general fitness. And then peripheral adaptations... These are specific adaptations, and this is where specificity comes into play. So what I'll do is I'll talk about these central adaptations. So what happens? In terms of the cardiovascular system, you get a big increase in blood volume when you do endurance training. And this is not only the red blood cells, which a lot of people are familiar with, especially uh, with the topic of doping and cycling being such a hot topic. And, you know, riders trying to specifically develop more red blood cells. And your red blood cells are simply the oxygen-carrying component of your blood. This is what oxygen binds to as your blood passes through your lungs. And then that oxygen is carried out to the muscles, out to the periphery. 
where it is used, it's offloaded into the muscles that need it. And then that oxygen goes through our metabolic pathways to produce energy. Those red blood cells also bring back carbon dioxide from the muscle and then drop it off in the lung to be breathed out. So red blood cells, you can really see that they are important for endurance performance because the more of them you have, the more oxygen you are able to move around the body and in turn, more carbon dioxide can be brought back. The other component of blood that people don't often think about or at least attribute to endurance performance adaptation is plasma volume. Now, plasma volume is the fluid component of your blood. So as the red blood cells increase, and they are actually uh, a thick, they are a structural component floating in the plasma, if you were to just increase your red blood cell count, then your blood is going to become very thick and viscous, kind of like jelly, if you like. So what needs to happen is the body also increases its plasma volume to maintain the balance between red blood cells and the fluid for them to float in. If you just increase your red blood cells, eventually your circulation would just stop because your blood would become solid. And this has happened, uh, and there is a lot of reports, I guess, of cyclists in the early years of blood doping and using EPO of having uh, heart attacks because they they weren't able to increase their plasma volume as fast as their red blood cells were increasing. So why does blood volume improve performance anyway? There is the oxygen carrying component of that, but also your blood volume, how much blood you have circulating around your body, is also quite related to how you're able to cool yourself during exercise as well. So it's like a coolant, it transfers heat away from the muscles and takes it out to the skin where it is able to be offloaded into the environment. When you exercise in the heat, all of the blood vessels on your skin start to dilate or get bigger to take more blood out to the skin. And blood flowing to the skin is kind of wasted in terms of it takes it away from your muscle. It helps you cool down, but it takes it away from your muscle. So there's less oxygen being able to be transported to your muscle, which is what is needed for the exercise. So what actually happens is there is a little bit of a tug of war between the skin and the muscle in terms of blood. So if you've got more blood, you're able to get some more to the muscle, but you're also able to uh, allow more to go to the skin to cool you down, to cool you down, which is really important for endurance performance in the heat. So what are other central adaptations that occur well you get an increase in just general aerobic enzymes that circulate around the body your heart also increases and specifically it's the ventricle size and this is the big chamber of the heart at the bottom of the heart so your your heart has different components there's little chambers at the top that's called the atrium there's two of those and then down the bottom there's the ventricle and there's two ventricles and when your heart contracts Half of the the blood in one ventricle shoots out to the to the uh, the lungs, and the other 
ventricle shoots out to the body. And so what happens is these ventricles grow in size. And what this allows is your allows your heart to pump out more blood with every beat of your heart. So you get a bigger pump. And this is why your heart rate decreases at rest because your heart doesn't need to pump as much or as fast to meet the demands of your resting state. So a bigger heart is is good for endurance performance. You've got more blood flowing in, and because it's beating slower, because it doesn't have to beat as fast, there's more time between beats for your heart to actually fill up. The more blood that's in your heart, the more you're able to beat out. So these adaptations happen no matter what sort of training that you do. You can do cycling and these adaptations will happen. You can do running, these adaptations will happen. You can do swimming. So the the key thing is, is that these central adaptations allow for general fitness improvements. And this is why cross-training works, is because if you improve these things, it's going to help you improve your performance no matter what your uh activity or your mode or your discipline of exercise is if you improve your blood volume on the bike it's going to help your running as well if you improve your heart size it's not only going to help you swimming but it's going to help you running cycling and kayaking so there is crossover and that's really key knowing what these central adaptations are now these central adaptations can also be stimulated by long, slow distance, traditional type endurance training. But they can also be uh, stimulated through high intensity interval training. Because a lot of what the body adapts to is stress. And you'll see as as I talk today is that the body is an unbelievably complex system. Not even just a system, it's a system of systems, unbelievably complex, but in the same breath, the body is extremely simple. If you put a load or a stress on it, the body then adapts to that to become better for next time. And this just comes back to survival. If the body experiences something that it was beyond its capacity then it wants to be able to deal with that next time to increase your chance of surviving and thriving. So for example, if you are out running and your body experiences uh, experiences hypoxia, which is just a lack of oxygen, so your muscles send a signal that we could do with a little bit more oxygen. Because during this run that we did, we experienced a lack of oxygen. And so what happens is your body releases a bunch of hormones that stimulate red blood cell growth in your bone marrow. And a whole bunch of new red blood cells are released to help with that oxygen carrying capacity. Also, as that heart beats and gets stressed and strained... As you're running up a hill, the heart cells say, far out, this is more stress than we've had before. 
we're going to have to remodel and readjust to allow for more blood to be pumped out with each beat. So it's an amazing way that the body senses these things and then adapts and adjusts and improves strictly through nature and progressive overload. And what we can do is we can get in there and if we know what's happening, we can start to exploit these physiological processes to improve our performance. And a lot of it comes back to that load recovery cycle. So we've ticked off the central factors. Let's have a look at the peripheral. So in the peripheral, what we've got is we get an increase in type 1 muscle fiber size. So our type 1 muscle fibers get bigger with endurance training. And there's also a conversion of type 2X muscle fibers, which are our super fast twitch muscle fibers, to our two. Two, two, two. We've got lots of twos going on. So the two X very fast twitch sprinting fibers, so to speak, move towards what are called a type 2B, which are our more uh, anaerobic glytolytic muscle fibers. And also everything sort of gravitates towards type 1. So it used to be thought that there are those different types of muscle fibers and they actually change from one to the other. Well, this is not quite the truth. If you can think of a continuum with a very slow twitch muscle fiber at one end, which is just all about endurance, let's say a marathon runner, and then at the other end we've got a sprinting muscle fiber, a very fast twitch that's able to contract and relax very quickly. Now each one of these muscle fibers have different characteristics. And what actually happens is muscle fibers don't necessarily switch from one to the other. They just slide along this continuum somewhere having more characteristics of a fast twitch muscle fiber or a slow twitch muscle fiber depending on the type of stress and training that are being put on it. So when you go out and you do endurance training, your muscle fibers are going to start to have more capillarization, more mitochondria, which I'll talk about very soon, in them, more aerobic enzymes that are going to make them more like a type 1 muscle fiber. Does that make sense? It's not necessarily they switch between one or the other. Muscle fibers are muscle fibers, but they just start to exhibit different characteristics, which scientists have just happened to pigeonhole into type 1, type 2B, and type 2A, and type 2X hope that makes sense. So what happens is your muscle fibers become better at endurance. And this happens in the specific muscle groups that are used for that activity. So now this is where training specificity becomes important. So we know that those central adaptations will help all fitness, so to speak, but peripheral adaptations will only help those specific adaptations occur. So this is where you cannot really improve your cycling by swimming because one uses the upper body primarily, the other one primarily uses the lower body. You will get those central adaptations that have crossover, 
but the peripheral adaptations which happen in the specific muscle groups won't affect each other. So we get those changes in uh, muscle fiber composition in the specific muscle groups that we use. They become, you get more of the type of muscle fiber that we're training, in this case type 1, and then they also get bigger, which is very cool. Now capillarization is is a key thing to get your head around. Now what happens is our our plumbing in our body runs through a bunch of different size pipes. As the blood comes out of the heart and runs through your aorta, the aorta is one of the biggest blood vessels in your body, and it's quite big and thick. And then as it goes down, let's say into our legs, it goes through progressively smaller and smaller pipes. And the reason it goes through smaller and smaller pipes is to maintain a pressure gradient. So if you can imagine, if the blood came out of your heart and then went into bigger and bigger and bigger pipes, the pressure would drop away. But going into smaller and smaller pipes, it it maintains that pressure as the blood branches out into these different pipes. The smallest of these pipes are called capillaries. And the capillaries are a little, you can sort of think of them as a, a spider web or a a network of uh, blood vessels that spread out and sort of interweave into this mesh. They're very small and they're only one cell thick. And the goal of a capillary or the job of a capillary is to squeeze a blood vessel through them And then in the muscles, which is a very low oxygen environment because all of the oxygen is being used for the the work that's just being done, the oxygen will offload into that low oxygen environment. So the, the oxygen will detach from the red blood cell, cross over into the muscle because in the body things always move down a concentration or a pressure gradient. So uh, oxygen molecule will always move from high concentrations to low concentrations. So on the red blood cell, it's in a high concentration, and it will move over into the muscle, offload into the muscle. And then at that same time, carbon dioxide will move from the muscle and reattach to the red blood cell to be carried back to the lung to be breathed out. So these capillaries are all about transferring oxygen at the actual muscle. So if you can think of it, I guess, as uh, as roads, the blood coming out of the heart is kind of like on a big highway. There's lots of it. Everyone's jostling for position. It's very, very busy. And then as it spreads out down into the body, it goes onto smaller connector roads, first onto some sort of main arterial routes, and then down into smaller side streets. And by the end, when it's getting into the muscle, into the busy city, it's squeezing down little alleyways in the muscles. So this capillarization is key. And as you train, more capillaries are made in the specific muscle groups that you're training. And the way that blood vessels are made is through a thing called 
sheer stress. So when more blood is is pumped through one of these blood vessels, there is a, a stress that is pushed out and the blood vessel experiences this outward swelling or this pressure on the outside of it. And what that does is it stimulates more blood vessels to be made. The other adaptation that also stimulates blood vessels to be made is hypoxia, or a lack of oxygen in that specific muscle. And you can get hypoxia, obviously, just by going for a run or a ride. A low oxygen environment occurs in that muscle, so the signal is sent to make more uh, blood vessels. People obviously try and exacerbate this hypoxia by going to altitude to train. And that sometimes has an effect, sometimes doesn't, depending on how well um, the altitude training block is planned. So we get more of these red blood cells out in the specific muscle groups. This increase capillaries increases the uh, the perfusion, so more blood going to the muscle. This increase in the capillary network decreases the transit time. So as the red blood cells comes through these capillaries, it slows down. The more capillaries you have, the slower the blood's able to move through them. And by moving through the vessels slowly, it allows more time for the oxygen to get offloaded and the carbon dioxide and other waste products to be onloaded into the blood. And so this makes the the system more efficient. One of the other peripheral adaptations that occur are an increase in mitochondrial density. Now mitochondria, if you can imagine that the, the blood vessels that we just talked about are the roads for supply of the body, the red blood vessels are kind of like the trucks that take things to and from the mitochondria. And the mitochondria are the power stations, if you can imagine. So all of the setup is kind of like what happens to power a city or a country. If we can imagine uh, a coal-fired power station, not the most eco-friendly thing in the world, but I think is a good example for this uh, analogy. So we've got these coal-fired power stations and what they need to run is coal. And the coal often isn't mined right next to the power station. So from the mine, if you can imagine, trucks are loaded up with coal, and in the case of the body, it's oxygen. And they drive along these highways, and they branch out to their respective power station that they are supplying. They drop the coal off there, and then the mitochondria, or in this case, the power station, use that coal or oxygen to produce energy. And then that energy is uh, moved to where it needs to be. The same sort of thing happens in the body. So these mitochondria are the little power stations that produce energy. And the more of these you have, so the increase in the number of them, and the bigger these power stations are, the more energy you're able to produce for endurance performance. Now it's not only the size and the number of these mitochondria that are important, but also the concentration of the enzymes 
in these mitochondria. So if you can imagine these enzymes are the little workers in the power stations, doing the job, shoveling the coal into the fire to make the energy. The more of these enzymes that we have, the more workers that we have helping produce the energy, the more efficient it is. The more energy we're able to make. And the other component, I guess, of those mitochondria are an improvement in fat metabolism. So that improvement of these mitochondria to use fat as a fuel. Now this happens through an increase in oxidative enzymes that we just talked about. So there's more enzymes that are able to oxidize fat as a fuel. And our body becomes more efficient at metabolizing fat, which is a good thing. Because fat is highly dense as a fuel source. And we have a lot of it stored on our body. The interesting thing is, as you train, fat is actually stored closer to the mitochondria in the muscle. So it's easier to access rather than being deposited in an adipose tissue, uh, the, the fat that you can sort of feel underneath your skin. Fat actually gets stored in the muscle. It's called intramuscular triglycerides. So more fat gets stored in the muscle, and it gets stored closer to the power stations so that it is easier for it to use. And all of this results in an ability to metabolize fat at a higher intensity. Now, we're probably at the uh, point now that a lot of my classmates were at thinking, this is all very nice, but what the hell does this all mean? And how do you relate it to training? Well, I'm sitting here going, well, how can this not relate to training? How can you not see it? All of these things are the adaptations that we're trying to achieve. And once we know these and once we know how they occur, we're able to then manipulate our training to get the desired adaptations so we know for an example that to get these cardiovascular adaptations we get them through steady state training and the reason that we get them through steady state training is that this provides an overload in the cardiovascular system there's that hypoxia that occurs and that drives an increase in blood volume the sheer stress in the heart from the repeated beating, and the key thing is that repeated, that long duration repeated beating, increases that size of the ventricle, which allows more blood to be pumped. Interestingly as well though, that these adaptations can be got through high intensity interval training. And how does that happen? Well, it's not just the duration of the beating of the heart, so to speak, or the hypoxia from long duration uh, training that stimulates these adaptations, but it's also the intensity of the exercise that can that can do these. So it, it's becoming more and more clear that the body will respond and give a similar adaptation in terms of these endurance adaptations that we're talking about, whether you do long duration training or you do shorter more high intensity training so if you sacrifice one you need to make it up with the other if you don't have the time to go long then go hard and it seems to tick all of these boxes or stress the different components throughout now when it comes to this mitochondrial uh, density and improvement there 
and then also our fat metabolism, these are a couple of areas that we can really start to focus with our training. So we can improve our fat metabolism in our body by doing training in a fasted state. So by going out in the morning before you have any breakfast, so in a fasted state, you will have fasted overnight. And what this means is that all of the glycogen or the storage stored carbohydrate in your liver is going to be used up overnight. So you're going to go out with compromised fuel supplies to start with. And then as you train, you're going to use glycogen in your muscles faster because you're not relying on that liver glycogen for that first part of the exercise. And then what this is going to do is send some signals to your body to say, hey, we are running low on glycogen. We need to make more mitochondria. Mitochondria being those power stations. And we also need to make more enzymes that can metabolize fat because we're running low on this carbohydrate. So doing fasted training or what I call nutrient deprivation training can help improve this aspect of your performance. It's not something that you should do all of the time, but it definitely has its place in training. Also diet can affect your mitochondria and the enzymes that are present and how well they are able to oxidize fat. So this is where um, diet periodization could come into play. Your mitochondria and your fat metabolism are also changed by the type of training that you're doing. If you are doing steady state training or traditional endurance training, this will increase the aerobic enzymes through a maintained increased flux through the pathway. However, you can get these adaptations through high-intensity exercise. And that's because, again, it becomes back to that stressing the body at the maximal rate of the pathway rather than a sustained stress. So the body's quite clever in that way in that you can get the same adaptation by doing two very different things, which can make challenge, uh, training challenging, but knowing that, you're able to use different tools when it suits you. So if you don't have time to do endurance, like traditional endurance training, going long, so to speak, you can make up for that by using the high-intensity interval training. And we know how it affects the physiology, so we know that it works. But it's probably also a good thing to do some of that endurance training to make up for the things that that high-intensity interval training lacks. So how do you best improve your aerobic energy supply? How do you best improve your performance when it comes to endurance? Well, we know that the duration is really important. We know the intensity is really important. And we also know the frequency, how often we train during the week is really important as well. So by using those three variables, we can change and adjust and we can tinker with the engine so to speak. Now, different athletes respond differently to the same training. So what we need to do is make sure that we apply this to the individual. And so you'll probably know in yourself what type of training you respond best to and how to maybe adjust that. Or maybe you don't. 
maybe you've always just did the same thing. And in that case, doing some tinkering can really help. And I guess this is starting to drag on a little bit and maybe I can uh, cover it in next week's episode a little bit more about the specific type of training sessions and the the types of adaptation that they 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 get and how we use those sessions to exploit these different types of uh, physiological adaptations. If you would find that useful, please post a comment uh, to let me know that you would like me to cover that in next week's episode of the podcast, and I will do that for you. So I hope that little brief, because you could cover multiple episodes in just different aspects of these in terms of blood volume adaptation, because it is very complex, but don't get overwhelmed by the complexity. Focus on the simplicity of it. If we stress the body and then give it adequate recovery time, it will get the adaptations that we are after, as long as those that stress is specific in what we are targeting. So I hope that's been useful, and I hope you will be able to use that in the future. Thank you for everyone who has been subscribing to the different channels that I am on. And thank you for leaving reviews over on iTunes. If you haven't done that, it would be greatly appreciated if you did. Now, if you have found this episode or other episodes of the Exponential Performance Podcast helpful and beneficial and informative for your training, please, it would be greatly appreciated if you could pay it forward with a small donation. Every cent of this will be donated to World Vision to help make some less fortunate people's lives a little better in this world that we live in. I've already donated $100 to kick things off, and it would be greatly appreciated if you can make a donation, even if it's a dollar. It may not seem much, but if the 500-odd people that listen to each episode of this podcast could each donate a dollar, then that would go a long way to making a big difference. So until next time, get out there and train hard, but most importantly, train smart. Smart.